This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm Brett Forster and this is the Power in Politics podcast for Friday, January 5th. On the pod today, America's top diplomat is back in the Middle East as the Israel-Hamas war nears the three-month mark. Coming up, the state of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and friends and loved ones of a murdered Muslim family address the convicted killer at his sentencing hearing. We'll hear about some of those victim impact statements. Plus, the U.S. says Florida can buy cheaper drugs in Canada, but won't that squeeze Canada's supply? The details of that story just ahead. We begin today in Gaza, where United Nations officials say a public health disaster is unfolding. The UN humanitarian chief said Gaza has become, quote, uninhabitable. He warns that people are facing the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded and that famine is fast approaching. According to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry, more than 22,000 people have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, many being women and children. Jason Nickerson is the humanitarian representative to Canada for Doctors Without Borders. He joins me now. Hello, Jason, and welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. It's been a while since we spoke with Doctors Without Borders about the situation in Gaza. What is the latest you are hearing from your team on the ground? Well, unfortunately, uh, the, the situation continues to, to go from bad uh, to worse. Uh, our teams from Doctors Without Borders are currently working uh, in six different uh, hospitals, uh, mostly in the, in the southern part of Gaza. Um, our teams are, are providing a, a pretty broad range of medical care, um, ranging from support to uh, operating rooms, emergency departments, uh, post-operative care, physiotherapy, mental health, and, and so on. Um, but uh, you know the reality is that needs are absolutely immense. Um, people are, are are being subjected to uh, really an untenable level of violence, um, and consequently, hospitals are are absolutely overwhelmed. Um, our teams are are working around the clock, um, and in some hospitals, are seeing anywhere from 150 to 200 wounded. Uh, patients per day. These are people who are arriving at the hospital with severe injuries, uh, bullet wounds, burns, shrapnel injuries, uh, fractures from being trapped under rubble and, and so on. Um, it's uh, an, an really indescribable uh, kind of situation and, and medical and humanitarian needs are unbelievably high. Well, speaking of medical needs, the WHO reported that only 13 out of Gaza's 36 hospitals are partially functional at this point. Earlier today, the United Nations uh, head of humanitarian relief said a public health disaster is unfolding in the enclave. What's your reaction to those comments? Well, our, our teams, in addition to working in hospitals, um, we're also doing what we can to provide primary health care, uh, again, mostly in, in the south, because that's where uh, we're able to have access. Um, so teams are, are providing, you know, sort of basic primary health care, uh, you know, consultations with, with doctors and nurses. Um, we are seeing a rise in uh, infectious diseases. 
Um, you know, uh, we're seeing um, hundreds of patients every day. Um, about half of those patients um, are coming to our clinics because of respiratory tract infections. Um, you know, basically as a result of people living in crowded, cold, uh, unsanitary uh, conditions. Um, we're talking about, you know, 1.2 million people who have been forced in, into an increasingly small space. Um, it's overcrowded. That obviously increases the risk of uh, infectious diseases. Um, and so that is now what we are seeing. We are seeing respiratory illnesses. We are seeing diarrheal diseases. Um, you know, it's it, it's really all of the elements are there for, for a public health disaster. There's no question. Well, I understand some aid is getting in. In the past week, the UN has said that uh, about 13 trucks with medical supplies made it across the border. That was on Monday. And 105 trucks with other essential supplies made it across on Wednesday. How far does that go to respond to the needs on the ground right now? Well, not nearly far enough. Uh, I mean, we are, we are talking about massive medical and humanitarian needs inside of hospitals. You know, as I was saying, 150 to 200 wounded patients per day. Um, it, it, this is uh, an, an unbelievable number of patients, you know, for, for any hospital to, to manage. So the volume of medical supplies that are required to provide, you know, surgical care, uh, dressing changes, wound care, uh, you know, quite basic kinds of day-to-day -day hospital functions, it, you know, this this is a large volume of medical supplies that is required to come in. Now, we have managed to move uh, two truckloads of medical supplies. Um, it works out to about 50 tons um, of medical supplies. Um, in, into Gaza, we have another 25 tons uh, that are waiting to get in. Uh, now. And so that is, you know, has mostly been things like surgical kits, uh, you know, dressing supplies, uh, that sort of thing. But there's there's no question that more medical supplies need to get in. Um, but also people need access to the very, very basics, food, water, um, you know, quite quite basic things for, for survival. Um, and they, they simply don't have access to that uh, right now. So there's a real urgent need for the, the pace and the quantity of humanitarian assistance getting into Gaza to increase uh, immediately. I understand Israel also does inspect trucks bound for Gaza to stop any items that it considers may have quote-unquote dual use. Uh, in other words, items that could be co-opted for military purposes to wage war. How does that complicate your efforts to get aid into the territory? Well, um, you know, getting getting supplies in has been extremely difficult, and and as I was saying, uh, you know, the the aid that is getting in is is simply not enough. The supplies that we are trying to move are are strictly medical supplies. I mean, as I was saying, these are surgical kits, burn dressing kits, uh, you, you know, quite basic medical supplies. There there is absolutely no reason for them to not be uh, moving into Gaza uh, quickly and and urgently, and that's exactly what needs to happen. But are these items being held up by these inspections to ensure that they aren't that they don't contain these dual use items? There, there's a, a several reasons that seem to be um, in 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 play, I guess, um, that are are slowing the delivery of aid in. Some of those are administrative barriers. Some of them are logistics. It's it's a very complicated um, uh, situation, um, but. You know, these things need to be resolved quickly because people need access to these supplies. 
All right, on a related note, the UN warned earlier this week that half of Gaza's roughly 2.2 million people are at risk of starvation. And more than 90% of people in Gaza say they have regular, regularly gone without food for a whole day. How well do you feel the world is responding to the urgency of that situation? Well, there, you know, there's there's a number of factors at play here. So you're, you're mentioning food. Um, you know, I think we've all heard the reports time and time again since the start of this that people simply don't have access to the food that they need. Um, it, the the my one of my colleagues was was reporting um, just a few days ago that food prices have increased somewhere between six and seven times above what they were prior to the start of this this conflict. Um, so it, you know, access to food is obviously essential for people's survival, as is access to clean water. People also need access to to fuel to be able to heat uh, wherever it is that they're living, but also shelter. You know, we have people. Our, our teams are reporting that. People are are sleeping under flimsy plastic tarps, you know, basically thin, transparent plastic sheeting. Um, but simply not enough to allow people to uh, escape from the elements um, and, um, you know, keep themselves warm and, and so on. But also beyond all of this, people need a, a, a safe place to be. This is a, a population that has been forcibly displaced into an increasingly small area in the south of the Gaza Strip. Um, people have been subjected to what appears to be indiscriminate uh, bombings and attacks. People have, have suffered tremendous levels of, of violence, and many have been displaced time and time again. So, you know, this, this is an, a, a really dire humanitarian situation where people are, are losing access to basically everything that they need for their day-to-day -day survival, um, in, including basic assurances of, of safety. Jason, we are already out of time, but I want to ask you one more question. Do you foresee things improving? on the ground for civilians in Gaza amid calls for a ceasefire and Israel saying it plans to withdraw some troops. Things have to improve. This this cannot continue the way that it is. Um, I think that we, we need to recognize, though, that any political action at the international level um, that falls short of calling for a sustained and immediate ceasefire is, is effectively a political failure. We need uh, the, the, the way in which this conflict and, and the way in which this war has been conducted has subjected people to unbelievable levels of violence, and it does not allow us and others to get in and provide the, the medical and humanitarian assistance that people need. This, this cannot continue the way that it is. We are ready to scale up. We want to do more, um, but we need assurances of safety and, and access to be able to do that. All right. Jason Nickerson is the humanitarian representative to Canada for Doctors Without Borders. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Brett. Today is the second day of the sentencing hearing for the man found guilty of killing four members of a Muslim family in London, Ontario. The Afzal family was killed while out for an evening walk in June 2021. The attack also left a nine-year-old boy badly injured and orphaned. Over the last two days, London Superior Court has heard from family, friends and community members about how the crime has impacted them and the Muslim community. On the way into the courtroom today, Nathaniel Veltman's lawyers commented on the emotions being heard in court. 
these people are very articulate and very eloquent about uh, about these events and how it's moved them, touched them, and uh, affected their lives. And that's 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 it's heartrending to hear them. And it's as I said before. I mean, the real issue is, is the sub theme for everybody seems to be vulnerability, and they feel unsafe now. So that's what's really uh, unsettling for everybody, all Canadians. The attack triggered national calls to combat Islamophobia. A representative of the National Council of Canadian Muslims spoke in London yesterday about what needs to happen now. What this trial has highlighted for us is that you cannot legislate your way out of hatred, especially of the extreme kind. With enough hatred, anything is a weapon and nobody is safe. So what we desperately need in addition to policy and legal reform, is to reckon with ourselves as a society. Also there today was Amira El-Gawabi, Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia. We spoke earlier and I asked about her experience listening to those impact statements. We heard, you know, in the words of now an 11-year-old, describing what it is like for him to no longer be able to talk to his mom and dad, no longer, you know, to imagine what it will be like to grow up with his sister. You know, she had uh, told him that she would be helping him with his driving lessons one day, that that she would be spending that kind of time, things that, you know, things that, you know, you take for granted as a sibling looking forward to. So hearing... um, that impact statement uh, as a final sort of kind of words from the courtroom uh, really resonated immensely for everyone. I, you could hear people sniffling and, and tears rolling down faces, uh, the family members, the families and um, representatives from the community. So, you know, the, the, the profound impact of this hateful um, attack, you know, continues to reverberate in London. Ms. El-Gawabi, you call this a time to reflect as a nation on how we ensure this never happens again. So where do you think the country stands when it comes to fighting Islamophobia? Absolutely, Brett. There's a lot of work to do. Sadly, we actually are seeing a rise in Islamophobia even as we speak. We continue to see issues of harassment of women who wear the hijab, for example, like what I'm wearing today, um, you know, feeling worried about their sense of safety, whether it's thinking about, you know, will someone try to hit them with their vehicle in a similar manner as happened on June 6th, or whether, you know, women have reported being spat on, for instance, uh, and even in the past mo- few months, as we've seen, unfortunately, conflicts, uh, you know, in the Middle East since October 7th, we've seen the climate really um, worsen, in fact, for members of Canada's Muslim communities alongside Jewish communities as well. So we continue to grapple with Islamophobia. We continue to look for policy changes. In fact, when I was speaking with one of the family members, um, Medija's uncle, in fact, who gave his statement yesterday, he told me that part of the healing from this horrific crime is seeing, you know, fellow Canadians standing together shoulder to shoulder in their commitment uh, to stand against hatred, to stand against Islamophobia, whether it is through education in our schools and our universities, whether it's through uh, all the work we do in our in our places of work and employment, employers, their role in being leaders against any types of violations of human rights and discrimination that we might see. The type of work we have to do as a society to address this kind of hate is deep, and it really is a collective 
thing that we must take on. For instance, we heard today as well from the witness who came across this crime and and saw the family members uh, after being struck. And she herself, who's not a member of the Muslim community, she's a member of London's community, and said for her, the sense of um, faith in Canada as a place where people of all backgrounds can continue to contribute and be who they are has been deeply shaken by what happened. And I want to follow up there if I can. Yes. Um, you, yes. you describe a, a climate uh, that's worsening, uh, but do you feel there has been any progress made since your appointment, let's say? I mean, progress, uh, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to really identify progress. On the one hand, we acknowledge the reality of Islamophobia. It's surprising, but it actually took this tragedy uh, several years ago, two and a half years ago, for all of Canadian society, including our leaders, to acknowledge even the word itself is is the way that we describe this type of discrimination that we've actually seen over the years, some contestation of the term itself. So the progress that we're seeing in acknowledging that this is a form of hatred that exists in our society alongside other forms of hatred that we need to tackle, that's, that's progress. The establishment of the office came about following uh, this tragedy where we had hundreds of recommendations made by community members saying to the federal government, we need to see action, we need to see that commitment. And our office continues to advocate on behalf of our communities to ensure that policies that can impact people's sense of safety well-being and inclusion are addressed and working very closely. Of course, I report to Minister Kemal Kira, who is Canada's Minister of Diversity and Inclusion and Persons with Disabilities, and her commitment and the government's commitment to addressing Islamophobia and all forms of hate um, is one that continues to propel this work. But it's not a, a, you know, a, a one person or one office. This is a collective responsibility that we have. And Canada is a, a, a nation built uh, you know, together with our Indigenous communities as a place where people of all backgrounds and religions can contribute positively. And this has shaken that sense of belonging and inclusion that we all have a right to feel. I want to move on to a related subject. Later this month, the lawyers are expected to present arguments about whether this attack constituted terrorism. It's important to remember that terrorism is defined in Canada's criminal code. What significance do you think labeling or finding that this was terrorism could have? Yes, it will be an important um, decision uh, that we hear from the justice uh, who has, you know, again, for the past two days, heard directly from how this uh, criminal act has indeed terrorized uh, members of not only London's Muslim communities, but we also heard from members of the Sikh community here in London, the Jewish community here in London, who described how just being, you know, a member of of another community how, you know, that otherization, that the feeling of vulnerability simply for being different. And so not only do Muslims in London feel uh, that they were terrorized by this, but other communities as well feel that way. Uh, but whether or not the judge will include that in, in her sentencing decision on January 23rd will remain to be seen. It will be an important message to say that such Uh, a crime based on white supremacist supremacist ideas, that we know that the convicted killer um, 
you know, had a deep hatred for Muslims, that he specifically targeted this family out for an evening stroll that night. He saw them in their traditional clothing, wearing hijab, wearing uh, clothing that marked them as Muslim, and he deliberately turned his truck around to strike them, to try to, you know, snuff out these lives and and succeeded with uh, four of the five family members. And so, you know, from from the community's perspective, this was an act that terrorized people until now. Uh, people still have trouble sleeping, have trouble walking in their communities, have trouble going to places of worship. The impacts have been felt and hate crimes our message crimes and the message has been loud and clear. And so what we heard today was a call for the justice system to send its own message that such terrorizing activity, such terrorizing crime has no place in our society and has to face the fullest consequence. All right. Unfortunately, on that note, we are out of time for this segment. Thank you, Amira El-Gawabi, Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia. Thank you so much, Brett. We have some breaking news to tell you about out of Washington now. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear Donald Trump's appeal of a decision from Colorado's top court that disqualified him from the election ballot. The Supreme Court will begin hearing oral arguments on this issue next month. This news comes just after President Joe Biden delivered his first campaign speech of the year, saying nothing less than American democracy is at stake in this year's presidential election. Journalist Benji Heyer reports. This was President Biden's most direct attack on Donald Trump of this election cycle. He says of his rival for the White House that he poses an existential threat to the nation. Mr. Biden warning that if Trump wins this year's vote, he'll use his power to destroy democracy, becoming, quote, a dictator on day one, and that democracy is on the ballot. This was an address made at a historic revolutionary war site, marking three years since the deadly January 6th assault on the United States Capitol, when a mob of supporters of then-President Trump stormed Congress in an effort to overturn his 2020 election defeat. Trump's assault on democracy isn't just part of his past. It's what he's promising for the future. He's being straightforward. He's not hiding the ball. His first rally for the 2024 campaign opened with a choir of January 6th insurrectionists singing from prison on a cell phone, while images of the January 6th riot played on a big screen behind him at his rally. Today, I make this sacred pledge to you, the defense, protection, and preservation of American democracy will remain as it has been the central cause of my presidency. This is all meant to be part of a a profound, a powerful pitch from the current president, that future and freedom is at stake. But really, is it persuasive enough? We have recent polls that show a quarter of the country believe the conspiracy theory that the FBI was behind the Capitol attack. More than a third of American adults thinking that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected to the White House. And that's an argument that continues to be falsely propagated by former President Trump. Trump impeached, of course, by lawmakers for inciting the January 6th insurrection and who faces federal charges for his alleged wide-ranging attempt to subvert the election outcome. That trial is scheduled for March. Meanwhile, Trump is holding a rally in Iowa over the weekend and remains the front-runner in that race to become the Republican Party's nominee to take on Mr Biden again in November. 
Benji Haya, CBC News, Washington. It's not the same job seekers market uh, that it was in 2022 and uh, in the first uh, few months of 2023. And Canada's job market froze in December. New numbers from Statistics Canada show just 100 jobs were added last month. The jobless rate held steady at 5.8%. It's yet another sign the economy is feeling the weight of 10 interest rate hikes. Here to dig into these numbers is CBC's Anis Haydari. He's a senior business reporter based in Calgary. Hello, Anis. Hi, Brett. So when we are looking at the employment numbers today, um, Stats Can said they were virtually unchanged in December. Um, 5.8%, far fewer new jobs than analysts expected. Canada's economy only added 100 jobs in December. That's it. It's a sign that conditions have really softened in the economy, according to economists. You know, we've got flat job numbers combined with an increasing population. So even though the job, the actual jobs maybe stayed relatively flat because more people have come to Canada or been born in Canada, either or, um, it keeps the unemployment rate from plunging. But these things aren't bad, according to the economists I spoke with. You know, the the situation looks pretty solid. An unemployment rate under 6% is not something that anyone is looking at as a problem. One thing that they have pointed out is that there aren't a lot of new jobs that are coming up. What we are seeing is that layoff rates have been um, low as well, both through 2022 and 2023. So people aren't really losing their jobs. Um, There just aren't a lot of new jobs coming to bear, Brett. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned it, uh, it. It's not all bad. There's some cause for optimism. On the other hand, I think everybody's kind of waiting on pins and needles to see what's going to happen next with the interest rates. So what could this mean for the Bank of Canada when its next interest rate decision comes? Well, uh, quite a few economists are saying this, this doesn't actually change much. Um, it probably means the Bank of Canada isn't going to be raising rates anytime soon. But one of the things to look at in these numbers is that wages went up. They were 5.4% higher in December for the average hourly pay compared to December the year before. So that that is kind of adds to this being a mixed bag of results. That's certainly what CIBC called it. Um, But CIBC specifically says they don't expect this to change when we see a rate cut from the Bank of Canada. They're predicting that June. If we look at Scotiabank, they're saying don't expect a rate cut in the early months of this year either. Bank of Montreal saying, uh, quote, the Bank of Canada will be very patient on cutting interest rates. So overall, a bunch of economists are saying this means more of the waiting game. You know, when we're seeing wages go up, that is certainly a good thing for Canadians who are making more money, but it shows that the economy is not you know, frozen over either. So we've got flat job numbers, wages going up, all that probably combines to mean that the Bank of Canada, the next time it makes an announcement, won't announce an interest rate hike, but probably not a cut. We've got to wait a few more months at least to see that, Brett. Yeah, and the higher wages could signal that people are becoming used to higher inflation and demanding more money, which is something the Bank of Canada has said it wants to avoid. Uh, We are unfortunately out of time, though, so I want to thank you, senior business reporter Anis Haydari. Prime Minister's plane broke down in Jamaica during his family holiday, prompting the military to send a second plane with mechanics to repair it. This is the latest development from the controversial Jamaica trip where yet another Trudeau family vacation came under fire. 
As first reported by the National Post, the PM and his family were given a free stay at a luxury Jamaican villa over the holidays that rents for over $9,300 a night. His office said the ethics commissioner was told from the start that the Trudeau's accommodations were provided for free to the family, despite initially telling the Canadian press that the family would be paying for their stay. The PM's office later issued what was described as a quote-unquote clarification saying that the family did vacation at no cost at a location owned by family friends. This isn't the first of the Prime Minister's holidays to come under the spotlight, raising questions about how a Prime Minister should vacation and what's expected of them. Time to bring in the power panel. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. And here with me in studio is journalist and author Paul Wells and Susan Delacourt, who is the national columnist for the Toronto Star. Hello, everybody. Hello, Brett. Hey, Brett. Shachi, it's only January, but it kind of feels like Groundhog or <laughs> but it kind of feels like Groundhog Day with this issue. What do you make of this story? This vacation is Jamaican us all nuts. Um, look, I'll say a couple things. First of all, this doesn't really rate in the top 35 Justin Trudeau scandals, but there are reasons why it is problematic, and then I'll explain why there are reasons why it probably won't move the needle all that much. I mean, if this is this is a situation where you've got a prime minister who started his political career as the great connector, right? The great communicator, the guy who got it, and he understood Canadian voters, and they really embraced that. We are in the middle of a cost of living crisis that continues to endure. In November, 37% of Canadians told us that they were cancelling or scaling back planned travel, including things like Christmas vacations. You've got four in five who say they're having a hard time making ends meet just around affording their basic groceries. And you've got a prime minister who didn't just go on a beach vacation, but he went on a very expensive beach vacation and then once again tripped over his own shoelaces in terms of communicating how that vacation would be paid for. So that's the bad stuff. Here's why I think it's not going to make that much of a difference. It's because people are already pretty locked in about how they feel about this guy. If his base did not abandon him after Tofino, after the Aga Khan Island, they're not going to abandon him now. If they didn't abandon him when he went around being photographed wearing watches that cost more than my first two cars, they're going to stick with him through this time. And I think it does, however, behoove us all to, to take a moment to say, well, who's got the moral high ground here? Because uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, also has uh, been seen to be photographed with maybe some champagne tastes. I don't know what Pierre Polyev did for his vacation, but it does speak to the need for sensitivity because when you're in the public eye, there is going to be scrutiny over these mm -hmm. issues. Now, I want to pick up on the communications issue you mentioned there. Susan, at first, the Prime Minister's office said that they would be covering the cost of their trip, and then it turned out that would be very easy because they were getting it for free. What do you make of that aspect? Well, it, this is a complicated issue, and I know that's a Weasley thing to say, but <laughs> first of all, uh, he was at this place last year as well. Uh, the place is owned by a man named Peter Green, who really is an old family friend of the Trudeau's. It's not like the Aga Khan, who is sort of a a, a friend come lately. It, w Peter Green, um, I think Pierre Trudeau was the godfather to Peter Green's son. 
they've been vacationing together and, and have known each other for a long time. So, and they went there last year, which is probably why the ethics commissioner said it happened last year, probably can happen this year. Probably why the PMO got a little, sort of fell down a bit on the communications because we did this last year and now it's out again. Um, I'm, I'm always intrigued by the way the ethics... I, I take it, and I'm, I'm going to look into this a bit more, I think. The ethics commissioner has definitions now of what is a friend. You know, like, uh, and it's, uh, it's going to be an intriguing question for Mr. Polyev, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, is he distancing himself from his friends right now? Like, the, the worst thing in politics is sometimes what your friends do to you rather than your enemies. And um, so... I agree with everything Shachi said. There's, there has been a certain tone deafness to this. But I think this, well, we can talk about this later. I think this is a very particularly Canadian thing as well. You don't see this in the mm-hmm. United States. Mm-hmm. This is well, a, a, yeah. Paul, I, I'll not note. I mean, it's standard practice for the federal ethics commissioner to be consulted on these. He was consulted in this case. So I guess that's the question. I mean, what's the big deal? I'm excited to hear that we have pre-clearance now, just like the rest of us get to get uh, get through U.S. Customs at the, on the Canadian side, so we can flee Newark Airport that much quicker. He actually gets pre-cleared by the ethics commissioner before he goes to the resort. Uh, that's a, that's a nice breakthrough. I uh, I spoke once to a, a, a then serving ethics commissioner, uh, and and what this person pointed out to me was uh, they don't. Um, they don't judge morality, and they don't judge propriety. They judge conformity with the ethics legislation. I, for one, have always been confused about this distinction between you, you take really substantial favors from a stranger, and that's bad, but if you take really substantial uh, favors from a friend, that's cool. I, 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 I don't understand why that's the way the law is written, but it is. Um, uh, Shachi said something interesting. She said, I don't know how uh, Pierre Poiliev spent his vacation. That gives Pierre Poiliev a political advantage in this case. Uh, and it, there were a million ways to take a, a vacation s- such that we would not be talking about it today. <laughs> yes. And Justin Trudeau picked the one that w- would have us. I, I don't think it digs him into a deeper hole, but he's in a deep enough hole right now. Yeah. And um, this would, at the margin, mm-hmm. tend to break their uh, efforts to come back from that hole. They had a better December than they had had October and November, and now this is how January starts. Susan, what does this issue say about what Canadians expect about their prime minister? It's not just the vacations, right? We heard his jet broke down in Jamaica. Uh, 24 Sussex's official resident is in disrepair. These things are all somewhat interconnected. It was said on the note when we were coming here, this is why we can't have nice things. Now, I've I've been intrigued by this. I've been here a long time, and I've been really intrigued by this. This isn't the first time that we've had, um, you know, sort of a populist view around the Prime Minister. I remember Preston Manning was going to turn Stornoway into a bowling alley, and um, we, we tend to begrudge our political leaders any hint of privilege, uh, any kind of, uh, even sitting in, uh, again, I will remember when they stopped for a while, I think it was during the Chrétien days, cabinet ministers stopped sitting in business class because they were worried about how that would look as well. I was in the United States for Thanksgiving, and Joe Biden was staying at the home of a wealthy person in Nantucket, and not a word spoken. In, you know, the Trump spent all his time at Mar-a-Lago. That doesn't bother his base. We are a, we are a very... We, we keep score of our politicians, I think, probably to our detriment. Mm-hmm. 
Shachi, I'll go to you on that one. Uh, where do we draw the line? How should the prime ministers go about not just selecting holiday travel, but uh, tackling some of these bigger issues? I think it's about how you frame expectation and, again, the communications around it. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone begrudges uh, people who work the number of hours that politicians work taking a break, even taking a warm break in the sun. Although I've known of, of Canadian politicians who, you know, despite some of the more extreme ends of, oh, I'm going to put on a hair shirt and never do anything nice for, them, for myself, uh, there are politicians who will say, look, uh, as long as I'm in office, I'll only vacation in Canada. Or, I, you know, I won't leave and I won't go to the resorts and the places that I might go because of the perception issue. And every single time a politician says, oh, by the way, I cleared it with the ethics commissioner. It's like, yeah, but what about the common sense commissioner, right? <laughs> it, this, they fall down every single time on somehow using the ethics commissioner as some sort of political fig leaf to cover them. And then it blows up in their faces over and over again. Justin Trudeau is not the only politician to deal with this. A couple other things to, to just note. I take Susan's point. I think things have changed a little bit in the U.S. I think Trump sort of normalized the I'm going to do whatever the heck I want aspect of the way presidents travel. But I remember reading Michelle Obama's uh, biography or, or watching a documentary somewhere about how controversial it was for her to take her daughters to Europe one summer because it defied convention and it was not long after the financial crisis and it wasn't seen oh. to be something that would be, um, you know, it wouldn't play very well politically so to speak. As to 24 Sussex, it seemed to be a different issue because that is an institute that's a home or a piece of mm -hmm. land or a piece of property owned by Canadians. And in fact, they're saying, you know what, fix the darn thing. It's, it's less to do about his private home. So in each of these cases, it's about how you frame it and how you set the expectations for Canadians. The problem here, again, wasn't necessarily the Jamaican vacation. Mm -hmm. It was the cost involved and also the lack of transparency or the perceived lack of transparency around it. And Paul, what do you think? What is driving this particular approach? Is it Canadians' expectations? Is it the perception? Or is it the way the issues are used almost as a political bludgeon by the opposition and opposition politicians in the House of Commons as well. So in a complex country, people are going to have different motivations. We're talking about this because it's otherwise been a slow news week. <laughs> uh, um, uh, some people will have no problem with, uh, with, with this vacation. Um, I, I think if the, if the government has nothing to apologize for, it would have been within the government's capabilities to put out a press release four days ago saying the Prime Minister and his family are vacationing at the invitation of Mr. Green at his resort and not paying. Uh, the, the Ethics Commissioner has pre-cleared this. Um, this is one of a few cases I can think of today where the government had the option of telling us what was going on and decided not to. Yeah, I think that gets to the heart of the issue, right? They, they could have communicated this clearly and they did not. And that just invites... I guess, reporters to come in and start sniffing around. So uh, we have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It is Friday, so I hope you all go and get to have a uh, two days worth of vacation yourself. Uh, I want to thank you, Shachi Curl, Susan Delacorte, and Paul Wells. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Brett Forster, and thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.